Hey everyone, I wanna let you know about an upcoming virtual conference that you gotta check out. In an effort to bring more thoughtful dialogue to the topic of mental health in the Latter-day Saint context, the Leading Saints team has put together the Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit. We have interviewed 20 plus individuals with expertise or real life experience related to so many mental health topics, including anxiety, depression, eating disorders, ADHD, and even scrupulosity. We will discuss all these topics as they relate to the Latter-day Saint faith experience and how we can all come together to better minister to those who struggle with mental health. It's free to attend virtually, and you gotta join us. For more details on the topics that we will cover during the summit and to register for free, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash mental health. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash mental health. My name is Jason Bingham. I'm the Bishop of River Ward in Brigham City, Utah, and uh, I support Leading Saints since the, the day I started listening to it. It's helped me connect with some resources and information that I never would have found otherwise. So extremely grateful for the things that Kurt has put together for us. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. I'm excited to uh, have you here. And if you're new to Leading Saints, I know, I know, if you're not new, this is the part that you always have to skip over, but hang with me here because this is exciting. You need to know if you're new that Leading Saints is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, like this podcast. Uh, we have a newsletter. We have a website at leadingsaints.org, tons of articles, live events, virtual events, podcasts like this, make sure you subscribe to all the above and uh, don't miss any fantastic information. Now, you may know, I, I, maybe I put a bumper at the beginning of, of this podcast, I assume I did, about the upcoming virtual summit called Mentally Healthy Saints. And this is where we do a deep dive into mental health in the context of being a Latter-day Saint, and even in the context of leading Latter-day Saints uh, to better mental health. And uh, so we've interviewed 20 plus authors experts, PhDs, just personal everyday individuals who've had their own struggle with, with mental health, and to see what we could learn. And I had the opportunity of interviewing Dr. David Morgan, who's a psychologist up in Washington, and uh, phenomenal concepts that you should consider, ponder over, and then we had a great, a great question and answer session at the end. And so pay attention to the six gospel-centered approaches to anxiety and how we can better help people understand and, and mitigate their own anxiety in their life. Now, this is done a little bit different since it's a, a virtual summit. I tried something different this round where I gave the presenter 45 minutes to present, unpack the, the concepts of their presentation, and then at the end, it's more of an interview style. So I'd love to share this with it. Jump in and you get a taste of what the Mentally Healthy Saints virtual summit will be like that you can sign up for at leadingsaints.org slash mental health. And it's for free, so don't miss it. So here's my interview with Dr. David Morgan. Today, I have the opportunity to talk with, or we get the opportunity to learn from, Dr. David Morgan. How are you, David? Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to, to learn from you. And, and uh, you know, we haven't had much history or connection before this presentation, and, and but I've been uh, hearing good things about what you do and perspectives you share. And so what brought you to this point and 
what intrigued you about maybe presenting around these topics to to this audience? Well, I just I've always loved the kind of the intersection between the gospel of Jesus Christ and mental health. I'll talk about that a little bit in my presentation, but I've been a licensed psychologist for 20 years and a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that whole time as well. And what I've just noticed is that there's so many just principles of the gospel that can help us improve our mental health. And I think it's becoming even more critical now. Um, some people are talking about the next pandemic being a mental health pandemic or the you know people that haven't coped as well with COVID-19, that these issues are going to start to come to the forefront. So I just think it's important to get good and accurate information out there about how we can manage these things and from a gospel perspective as well. Yeah, love it. Well, let's jump into it and uh, I'll sit back and take some notes and okay. then we'll chat at the end here. Okay. So thanks again. I'm so glad to be here and be part of this this virtual mental health summit. This is amazing. I mean, this is part of the with COVID-19, that's been a drag. I mean, let's not mince words, but there are so many good things that are going to come of it. And these types of things are some of the good things that come of that. Just this last week, I was in Provo. I was invited to speak at the BYU Women's Conference, which is all virtual this year. And so I went to the broadcasting studio and recorded my remarks. And so that's going to be, I mean, typically they can get, you know, a few thousand people there on campus, but this has the potential this woman conference to reach tens of thousands and just like this presentation as well. So thanks to Kurt for putting it together for all the work that he does. And, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here as well. As I mentioned, kind of in my discussion with him, I'm a licensed psychologist. I got my, my bachelor's, master's and PhD at BYU in Provo, Utah. And it was a great blessing because it enabled me to learn the gospel of Jesus Christ at the same time I was learning about psychology. And what I found in the years since then is that there are just there's so many ways in which they interface and so many ways in which they overlap. And when I read the scriptures, I, I just see aspects that say, oh, that's how you can manage anxiety. That's how you can manage depression. That's how you can increase self-esteem or, or improve relationships. And so I love being able to share that with others. And that's what we're going to talk about today is anxiety management using gospel principles. Let me show you, oops, get to the slide here. So I already told you about me, so we don't need to know any more about that. But let's look at this scripture. This is a scripture that's always intrigued me from the Book of Mormon because it's so out of place. Um, this is Alma chapter 46 is uh, Captain Moroni, title of Liberty. So that's like the bulk of the chapter. And then you get this strange little scripture right at the end of it. And it says, uh, and there were some who died with fevers, which at some seasons of the year were very frequent in the land but not so much with fevers because of the excellent qualities of the many plants and roots which God had prepared to remove the cause of diseases to which men were subject by the nature of the climate. Totally out of left field, Mormon makes this commentary. And I think it's one of the few scriptures in the Book of Mormon that actually references kind of like a, a health or physical health issues and remedies for that. And so, but it makes sense, right? Because pharmaceuticals weren't going to be widely available until many centuries from then. And so Heavenly Father said, hey, let's prepare some ways that people can still be healthy, that they can be healed from things that just exist, you know, that probably existed in the Garden of Eden or, or, uh, or just growing plants in the world after that. So when I read that scripture, I think, wouldn't he have done the same for mental health? Would, or, or would he have said, hey, sorry, guys, you're going to have to wait until the mid-1800s, till Sigmund Freud comes around, and then you're going to be able to have some good tools to deal with mental health. And uh, apologies to any psychoanalysts out there. I don't think that Sigmund Freud had great tools for mental health. So basically, you have to wait till the 1970s until we get some really good tools to manage mental health. Of course not. 
He says, I'm going to give you those tools from the very beginning, and they're in Scripture, and that's where we can find them. And so um, as we talk about uh, principles to manage anxiety today, that it's going to be a combination. It's going to be um, the true principles that are founded in research and good psychological practice, but that are also found in the Scriptures as well. Those same principles are found, not maybe couched a little bit differently, but those same truths are found in Scripture. And I think basically what we've got is we've got the principles of psychology are simply gospel truths that have been revealed to smart women and men over the years who have studied psychology, and then they've been couched in psychological terms. I think all truth comes from the same source. It doesn't matter whether it's chemistry truth or physics truth or psychology truth or medicine truth. It all comes from our Heavenly Father. So those are the things we'll talk about today, and I'm, I'm grateful to be able to talk about that. So let's look at six principles today. And these are things that you can use for yourself. If you struggle with anxiety, if you are a leader of people and, and you find that they have a lot of anxiety, these are things that you can use to better understand them. Some people don't have anxiety and they don't really get it, but this might help you understand it a little bit better. So the principles apply to both. I was just talking with a, a Stake Relief Society president in Texas the other day, and she was saying that in her work with the sisters in her stake, that almost every single sister is either struggling with a mental health issue or has kind of a first degree association with someone who is struggling with a mental health issue. And if you're listening to this, I would imagine that it's probably similar. Either the principles we talk about today, either you are feeling them or, or the not the principles, but the, um, the anxiety symptoms we talk about, either you're feeling them now or you felt them in the past, or you know someone who is currently feeling them or has felt them in the past. So they're very germane to us today. So let's get on to the first one here. And it seems kind of silly, but it's don't worry about having, having anxiety. Anxiety is a very natural experience and it is, it's biologically uh, driven. And some anxiety is actually good for us. There's actually a model. If you imagine a curve like this parabola, it, it's called the Yerkes Dodson model of performance, of stress performance. And so at the one end, where the, where the anxiety is very low, it says that there's hardly any motivation to do anything. As that stress and anxiety increases, it reaches an optimal point. So this moderate amount of stress and anxiety is, tends to be good for performance. So if you're getting ready to go play a piano solo or something like that, if you have no motivation to do it, it's probably going to be crummy. If you have too much anxiety to do it, then you might stumble. But if you have just that right amount of anxiety, then it's good. It's like me right now. I mean, I'm, I enjoy public speaking, but I'm a little bit nervous right now. I'm not overly nervous, but that moderate amount of anxiety is going to help improve my performance. So that's fine. Um, anxiety is, is good when we need temporary energy boosts as well. Biologically, it's kind of that fight or flight sort of thing. If you are, I don't know if you saw, it was probably a year ago, it was some guy in Provo Canyon in Utah, and this cougar or mountain lion comes out of nowhere and is uh, and keeps threatening him and i can tell you not having ever been in a situation like that but having had extreme anxiety at that times at times that guy was probably freaking out and that anxiety is going to enable him to run faster to run longer climb quicker anything like that and it's the body's natural defense against that sort of uh, predators or fearful situations the problem is that we don't usually run into those and we sometimes we get that same amount of anxiety by walking into a crowded grocery store. 
Now, there is nothing inherently dangerous about a crowded grocery store, but some people have the exact same emotional experience walking into that store as that fellow did being chased by a mountain lion. And because the mind doesn't really know the difference in those situations, our experiences are the same. And when that anxiety becomes chronic, then it becomes problematic because it's never designed. It's designed to be kind of these short-term bursts of energy that help us, and then it subsides again. But when our foot is kind of on the anxiety pedal for you know days, weeks, months, and years, it tends to really wear us out. So that's where we have to um, learn to manage that. When I say don't worry about having anxiety, what I mean is, what I also mean is that it's okay to have weakness. It's okay to have challenges in our lives. If you say, well, Brother Morgan, that's fine, but I, I do have anxiety all the time. And I can't walk into a crowded grocery store without having a panic attack. I'm here to tell you that's okay. It's part of the plan. Ether 1227, Moroni is commenting about his weakness. And the Lord says, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And I think that's totally true. And I think many of our chronic challenges, including mental health issues, are part of that process for Heavenly Father to teach us to be humble, to have us reach out to him. When everything's fine, we usually don't reach out for help. We say, hey, I got this. No problem. And, and I'm, and I'm going to be fine. When the going gets tough, that's when we drop to our knees and say, Heavenly Father, please help me. I kind of think that he keeps the flame turned on most of the time. Sometimes it's more intense than others, but I think he does that on purpose so that we will be humble and that we will go to him. So oftentimes, um, anxiety or any other mental health issue is quite frankly a gift from Heavenly Father. It's a way for us to, uh, to learn to grow and to learn to trust him. So even just thinking about it that way, might think, okay, well, I have anxiety, but I don't need to be freaking out about the fact that I have anxiety because my anxiety is a gift. It's a test from Heavenly Father. The other thing is that sometimes we just need something to push against. Elder Bednar, many years ago, talked about a uh, situation where his friend bought a four-wheel drive truck, took it up in the snow to cut some wood, and as soon as he gets up there, it's stuck and all four tires are spinning. And he's thinking, great, what do I do? So he says, well, I'm, I'm here, so I may as well get the wood. So he cuts the wood, loads it in the truck. Then when he starts the truck again, he's able to go because the extra weight of the wood gave him enough traction to keep going. Um, and he said that sometimes we need that extra load in life in order to keep going, to give us traction to move forward. So I, when I say don't worry about having anxiety, that's what I mean. This is something that can be to your benefit. It's something that can help you grow. And so if you say, hey, that's just me. I have anxiety issues. It's just the way it is. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not broken. I'm not flawed or cursed or anything like that. It's just my situation and it gives me an opportunity to improve. So that's principle number one is not to worry about the fact that you might have anxiety. Number two is to understand diagnosis and diagnostic labels. Google is amazing and it's wonderful. It's been kind of a nightmare for mental health professionals like myself because everybody Googles their symptoms. And they come in and they say, hey, I've already diagnosed myself. And I'm asking you, please, if you're watching this, don't do that. That's our job. Uh, just like if you had a physical health issue, you wouldn't, I mean, you, I, I suppose you'd Google it, but let us be the final determination on if anything is wrong with you. Because sometimes they're not. Diagnoses, mental health diagnoses are formalized in a big book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's currently in its fifth edition. And basically, it's everything that could possibly go wrong with you mental health-wise. And, but those, the purpose of those diagnoses is for mental health professionals to be able to communicate kind of succinctly with one another. So if I read a report from another psychologist and she says that this person has, you know, diagnosis one, two, and three, 
that gives me a wealth of information by just those three lists of things, because then I have a pretty good idea of what this person is going through, what struggles they have, and what direction treatment might take. Now, these diagnostic labels, they change from time to time, and they are politically motivated. There is a group of psychiatrists who make the final decision on this. And believe me, there are a lot of influences that come onto this committee, and some diagnoses make it in, some don't. And again, there's, there's politics involved. So it's not really the, the final word on things. It's a fluid type of situation. For example, most of you might be familiar with a diagnosis called PTSD. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's kind of a, an adverse and maladaptive reaction to serious trauma. That diagnosis has also been called shell shock, soldier's heart, combat fatigue, war neurosis, and post-traumatic stress syndrome. So that exact same collection of symptoms over the past 70 years has had, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six different names, and it changes. And the next iteration of the DSM, maybe they change it again, who knows? So that label doesn't necessarily, it certainly doesn't define you, and it can change from time to time. The other thing is that some things are considered pathological at one time and not considered pathological at another time. Some There are new diagnoses, and there are diagnoses that no longer exist anymore. As society evolves and opinions change. We decide that some things are not evidence of mental health issues and some things are. So, and the reason I mention this is that sometimes what happens is that people will come to me and they'll say, I have these issues. I have these diagnoses. And oftentimes they have a list of diagnoses, like six or seven diagnoses, sometimes more. And, and I say, good heavens, how did you get so many diagnoses? Well, a lot of times they, it's like a collection and they say, well, I was diagnosed with this when I was six and this one I was 14, and this one I was 26, and this one I was 37, and they still think that all those things are wrong with them. Most of the time, they're not. Those things are not still wrong. It's just like if someone asked you about your physical health, you wouldn't say, well, back in 86, I had a cold, and then in 92, I had, um, you know, whatever, strep throat for, you know, three weeks or something like that. We wouldn't list that. We'd probably just list the things that are going on now. And mental health is the same way. Most mental health diagnoses are not permanent. And, and that's something that's very important to remember. If you go into a psychologist and you get diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, since we're talking about anxiety, that does not mean that you will always have generalized anxiety disorder. It can change. It can go away. It can turn into something else. It can go into remission, all sorts of things. So kind of be careful about those diagnostic labels and certainly don't presume that they are permanent that they're going to last forever. Like I said, the nature of most mental health diagnoses is that they are temporary. Sometimes they can last for a long time, but if we presume that they are permanent, then I think that adds an extra weight to it that is unnecessary. And it adds an extra burden that is unnecessary. So a couple things to remember about that. Number one, don't self-diagnose. Number two, when you are looking, if you do have mental health issues and you want an accurate diagnosis, get an expert diagnosis. Primary care physicians are wonderful wonderful for any number of things. They're not particularly sophisticated at making mental health diagnoses, yet that's where most people get their diagnoses from. So if you really think that you've got a significant issue and you want appropriate treatment for it, go to a licensed or credentialed mental health professional. That could be a, a master's level or a doctoral level person. If they're licensed, that's better just because that shows they've been through some sort of rigor and, and the state that they live in says that they're qualified to do this. And then, and once you get that diagnosis, work towards treatment and understand that it's not necessarily permanent. So, so be careful about diagnosis and diagnostic labels. 
All right. Number three is to realize the power of your thoughts. There are a number of different causes of anxiety, but in almost every case, our thoughts play a significant role in how we feel. The same event can elicit two very different responses depending upon our situation. For example, take skydiving. So if you can't wait to go skydiving, then you're going to get up in the plane and you're going to jump out of it and it's going to be fantastic. And you'll put it on Instagram and Facebook, say what a great time you had. If you are being coerced into doing that and it's the last thing you want to do, then you're going to be terrified by that experience. The exact same experience, but depending on how you perceive it, it affects the way that you feel about it. A great example from scripture is when the Savior is on the boat on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. So if you remember, they're out there and apparently it's been a long day because the Savior is asleep. He's, he's even got a pillow and he's up in a part of the ship and he is asleep. Well, the storm starts and it's not uncommon for significant storms to come in very suddenly on the Sea of Galilee. And this storm is so significant that the disciples think that they might die. I'm sure that it probably progressed in intensity and they're probably thinking, what should we do? And they're doing the best they can, bailing water and, and doing what they can to secure the ship. The Savior is asleep the whole time. And I'm sure they debated whether they should wake him or not because they think they're going to die. That is a very significant, a significant belief, which is going to lead to a lot of anxiety. So what do they do? They finally wake him up. And he kind of rebukes them for being of little faith and, and commands the storm to cease. Immediately it ceases. It says there was a great calm. I think that's I can't imagine experiencing that. They were probably astonished at that. And But the thing to think about is, why was the Savior able to sleep when the apostles were having such significant anxiety? They're both in the same storm. They're both having the exact same objective experience, yet they're having a very, very different subjective experience. And it has to do with what they believed and what they perceived about the event. The apostles thought they were going to die. Naturally leads to much anxiety. If I think I'm going to die, I'm going to have a lot of anxiety as well, probably. The Savior knew he wasn't going to die. He knew there wasn't any chance he was going to die, and that he had ultimate control over all the waves and the wind. So, of course, he's able to sleep. He has no anxiety because of what he believed about the situation. Most of the time in our lives, we experience those types of storms, and we can't control many of the events that happen to us. There's just stuff that happens, and there's so many factors involved in our lives that have to do with what we experience, that trying to control the storms is just a really bad strategy because you can't. You can't control everything that happens around you. What you can control is the way you think about what happens around you. So as we develop greater mindfulness about our thoughts, then I think that is helpful because then we start to say, okay, well, is that thought true? Is it accurate? And if it's not, then what can I do to change it? And if you have ever been involved in any sort of counseling, that is usually a major focus of that. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's an analysis of the way we think about things, which then influences the way we feel about things. And if we can change the way we think, then we will necessarily change it the way we feel. One of the most important things that we need to do in analyzing our thoughts is to make sure that they are lined up with truth. If we believe things that are untrue, then our emotional experiences are going to be distressing when they don't necessarily have to be. So we need to believe what is true. And so what we can do is you, as you start to analyze your thoughts, and for example, going back to the idea of, of having a panic attack in a grocery store, well, the thought associated with that is if I go into a crowded room, I might die. I might panic. I might collapse, those sort of things. It's these catastrophic sorts of potential outcomes. 
The truth is you're not going to die in a crowded grocery store. You're going to be very uncomfortable. That's the truth. That's different than thinking you're going to die. And the truth is that you could probably get through that too. You'd be very, very uncomfortable in the process, but you could get through it as opposed to there's no way I can do this. You see how just starting to modify those beliefs and making them a little closer to truth affects what you might be able to do in that situation. There was an amazing talk. It was a BYU devotional, I think 2018 by Lawrence, Lawrence E. Corbridge of the 70. It's called Stand Forever. I highly recommend it. If you haven't read it, if you just type in Stand Forever BYU devotionals, it'd probably be the first link that comes up. This is what Elder Corbridge said. People said you should be true to your beliefs. While that is true, you cannot be better than what you know. Most of us act based on our beliefs, especially what we believe to be in our self-interest. The problem is we are sometimes wrong. Someone may believe in God and that pornography is wrong and yet still click on a site, wrongly believing that he will be happier if he does or that he can't help but not click or it isn't hurting anyone else and it's not all that bad. He is just wrong. Sometimes you may believe it is wrong to lie and yet lie on occasion, wrongly believing he will be better off if the truth is not known. He is just wrong. Someone may believe and even know that Jesus is the Christ and still deny him not once but three times because of the mistaken belief he would be better off appeasing the crowd. Peter wasn't evil. I'm not sure he was even weak. He was just wrong. When you act badly, you may think you are bad, when in truth you are usually mistaken. You are just wrong. The challenge is not so much closing the gap between our actions and our beliefs. Rather, the challenge is closing the gap between our beliefs and the truth. That is the challenge. I love that final statement there. Closing the gap between our beliefs and the truth. And Elder Corbridge is absolutely right. Most of the time when we behave, we are behaving consistent with what we think is right. Even when our behavior is bad, there's a part of us that think maybe it's okay to do that behavior right now. So aligning your beliefs with truth is critical. And that's that third point is just realizing how much, how influential your thoughts are and taking the time to look at them, analyze them, and make sure that they are consistent with true principles. Okay. Slide number, oops, next principle is anxiety management involves confronting anxiety. And this is a this is kind of a tricky situation because most of the time when we have anxiety, the last thing we want to do is to do the thing that makes us anxious. But that's the only way that it really gets better. I was thinking about this and it's kind of like learning to swim. You could study books on swimming. You could observe people swimming. You could learn all the theory and all the technique with never getting in the water. You're not going to be able to swim until you actually get in the water at some point. And all that theory and study and observation is not going to teach you to swim until you actually get in the water and start to do that and practice. The exact same thing applies to anxiety. Until you do the things that make you anxious, you're really never going to overcome them. And the problem, it goes back to the power of our thoughts. And we have these very kind of catastrophic potential futures that we think about. And we go, these terrible things are going to happen if I do this thing. Well, the truth is, those things are probably not going to happen. But until you do the thing that you think is going to cause this catastrophic future, then you're never going to know. And part of the problem is that as we perpetually avoid that situation, then it just becomes this completely unknowable, unknowable thing. And we just presume that we're right. We think if I do this thing, this terrible, terrible thing is going to result. And the more we avoid doing the thing, the more that reinforces the, what we think is the truth that this thing, this terrible thing will result, which is not true. When I have worked with people who have had anxiety 
and encourage them to do the things that make them anxious, when they do them, they almost always say the exact same thing. They say, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Now, they didn't enjoy it. So don't get me wrong. It's not like they're saying, that's fantastic. I can't believe I, I'm not shopping in crowded stores all the time. But they say, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And that is, and that is just a really important thing to, uh, to understand. Sometimes we just we let our minds run wild with these anxious thoughts, and we have to rein those in and say, hey, that's not necessarily true. And until I do it, I'm not going to know. One of the things that it reminds me again of an example. Years ago, I was the executive secretary in our ward. And so it was my responsibility to get uh, people to say the prayers for sacrament meeting. And I had arranged a few days in advance for someone to say an opening prayer. And about 10 minutes before the meeting, I get a text and the person says, hey, I'm sick. I'm not going to be there. Can you get someone else? Well, and one of the problems with having a psychologist for an executive secretary is that I knew the people in the ward and I knew the ones that had anxiety. And there was one particular woman, good friend of mine, and she had a lot of anxiety and she did not want to give the opening prayer. She was on kind of my list of people who would typically say no when asked. One of the things she didn't like was being asked so far in advance since she'd worry about it the whole time. And so, and she had arrived at church early that day and I went up to her, I said, hey, I got an opportunity for you and it's a miracle. The person that was supposed to say the opening prayer is not here today and he's sick. And so I need someone to do it. So now I'm going to ask you to say the opening prayer and you only have like nine minutes to freak out about it because church starts in nine minutes. I said, will you do that? And she kind of looked at me and she said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, she said, can I write it down? I said, of course, I don't care what you do. Um, just get up there and say a prayer. And so she, she went up there and she said her prayer it was perfectly fine. I could tell she was terrified. And then she came back afterwards and she said, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And so it's just another one, just an example of how we need to do those things that create the anxiety. Now, you don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to go out and do the most terrifying thing that you can think of to begin. If you're just learning to swim, your first time swimming doesn't have to be dropped out of a helicopter into open water in the ocean and go from there. You start by putting your face in the water and blowing bubbles. That's how we get started. That's how we start with anxiety management as well. You don't, do, you don't think of the most terrifying thing you can think of and just go do it for six hours and say, I'm getting this over with once and for all. That's probably going to be too much. It's probably be, going to be overwhelming. If we use the example of a store, if it freaks you out to even think about going to the store, then maybe the first step you do is you just go sit in your car for five minutes and think about going to the store, but you don't go. And then you sit in your car for 10 minutes. And then, the, and then a couple weeks later, you drive your car to the store and you stay far back in the parking lot. You don't go in, but you stay in your car. And then you, a week later, you do that and you park closer to the store. And then maybe you stand in the entrance and then maybe you just go in and go out. You, you, you get the picture. You do things little by little until eventually you're able to tolerate the, the anxiety. And, and what happens is each time you engage in something that you believe is going to cause you anxiety you find out that it probably wasn't as bad as you thought, and you become more tolerant of it, and the anxiety becomes less over time. Alma taught his son Helaman that by small and simple things, great things are brought to pass. It's exactly what we're doing here, small and simple, little things each day. I tell my clients to do something every day that scares you just a little bit if they have anxiety issues, and it almost becomes like an inoculation against anxiety and becomes very, very helpful in the long run. So that's number four is to is that uh, anxiety management means you're going to have to do something about it. You're going to have to confront your anxiety at some point. Principle number five is to recognize anxiety as a means of building faith. The scriptures talk about the exercise of our faith. 
And I think that is a totally apt description of that. It involves effort on our part. When we exercise, if we don't do something strenuous, it doesn't really help us. Years ago, I was, I taught indoor cycling at our local gym. I, uh, my wife uh, turned me on to it, spin class. If you're familiar with that, you get on these stationary bikes and it's a very, can be a very intense workout. And I really loved it. And so I thought, hey, uh, maybe I could teach this. And so for a couple of years, I, I did that. I got certified and taught that. One of the things that I would tell my students as we were in class is that I'd said, look, you've already come to the gym. You already came to the class. You're on the bike. So why not work hard? Because I could tell when people weren't working very hard, that wasn't my business. I said, sure, business, whether you want to work hard or not, but you're already here. Why not do something about it? On each of those bikes, there was a little red knob that increased the resistance. And so as you turn that knob to the right, it would make the bike harder to pedal. Now you could keep that knob all the way off to the left. And it's very easy to pedal in that situation. And you could ride the whole 45 to 50 minute class and probably not even break a sweat. You could do that. What's the point? Now, what's the point if we do that, if it doesn't help us get stronger? You're already there at the gym. Let's do something that's going to help you. And so when we are exercising our faith, it's the same sort of thing. If you don't have something that challenges your faith, how are you going to exercise it? If there's nothing that turns that red knob to the right that increases the weight on that wheel, then how are you going to build your faith? If every principle that comes to you makes perfect sense and you don't have any questions, then that's not a trial of your faith. But every single one of us is going to have something that comes where we're going to go, hmm, I wonder about that. And and is that right? And we're going to have to seek for additional knowledge, seek for additional understanding from our Heavenly Father and from confirmation from the Spirit that it's true. As we go through that process, as we go through that exercise of asking and seeking more information, that becomes, that generates strength. And that's how we get stronger. One of the things that we need to remember is that we are here to become like Heavenly Father. We're not here to get through life and be the exact same as when we, as when we left heaven. We're here to become very, very different. It's like in the parable of the talents, and you'll remember how that goes. The Lord represents our Heavenly Father. He comes to those three individuals and says, I'm going to give you some money, which were talents, and you're going to be the, the steward of these. So to one person, he gives five. To another, he gives two. Another, he gives one. Well, the people that got five and two, they went and they risked and worked. They probably, maybe they bought some raw materials and made some things and sold them at a profit. Maybe they went to the, their version of the stock exchange and, and did something like that and increased the amount of money. And that was the intention. And when the Lord came back, the one that had five had increased his talents to 10, and he received a great reward. And the one that had two had increased his talents to four. He received the exact same reward as the person who had given 10. Even though he had given much less in comparison, he had done the work. He had done the work and made the effort and doubled his as well. Now, the person that received one talent simply went and buried it. He was afraid. He said, what if I lose it? What if I buy something and it doesn't work out? What if my business venture fails and I'm not able to, to have that to give my Lord what he has? So he gave him, just said, here's the talent that, I, that you gave me and, and you didn't lose anything. And I bet he was probably shocked at the reaction because the Lord was not happy with him because he was supposed to take that talent and make something of it and increase it. So when we have, when we have anxiety, to me, it just seems like an opportunity to increase our faith. Faith and fear are the opposite. And the two really don't, uh, are, are really unable to occupy the same space. Those things that you are afraid of, 
are things you typically don't have a lot of faith in, and vice versa, those things you have a lot of faith in, you're not really afraid of. So that gift of anxiety, like we talked about in the first principle, where our Heavenly Father has given us weakness, that we might be humble, that we might turn to Him and become strong. As you have that anxiety, if you view that as a way, as resistance on your spin bike, so that you can become stronger, then I think that kind of changes the way we feel about it. And instead of it being this this horrible thing that we just want to get rid of, we say, hey, this is my opportunity to become stronger. This provides that that weight in the back of my truck in order to give me traction in order to move forward. And anxiety is actually a great way to build faith because the less anxiety that you're able to develop, you're almost always going to replace that with faith. And that trade-off can be great. So so just looking at that, recognizing anxiety as a means of building faith just is a different, just kind of a different slant on that and kind of turns it more into a positive or a potential, a potential good thing as opposed to a perpetual bad thing. All right. And number six, be careful about what you feed your brain. This is important. Our brains are pr- probably the most amazing organ in the human body, at least as far as what it can do. Close competition with the heart, I would say. I just I think the heart is awesome how it pumps for like 100 years, never gets tired. That That's amazing. The brain is so adaptable, and it is going to adapt to anything that you put in it. The brain truly is neutral. And then this is my opinion. Some people may think otherwise, but the brain responds to the information that you put in it. And the more you feed it with certain things, the more it is going to adapt to that. So, so we have to be very, very careful about the stimulus that we put in. President Packer, Boyd K. Packer, many years ago said that our minds were like stages and that we were the stage managers. And so whatever comes on the stage, we need to be able to control that. And if things come on the stage that we don't want to be on there, then we need to pull them off the stage. And, and so that doesn't you know, affect us. It's a great analogy. The problem is the more things that we let on stage, sometimes without even being aware, the more it's going to influence us. And sometimes we're pretty crummy stage managers. We just kind of leave that backstage door open and we're off in the back on our phones while all kinds of things are crowding onto our stage. And all of that is going to have an influence. What happens with our brains is that they become very, very efficient at the things that they do over and over and over again. If you've ever learned a second language, you know that. I served my mission in Mexico. And when I was there, at first, Spanish was very, very difficult. And I stumbled over my words and I was kind of thinking in my mind in English and having to translate it to Spanish. But in due time, Spanish became very, very easy. In fact, towards the end of my mission, I could barely speak English. I was thinking in Spanish, dreaming in Spanish, and Spanish became the thing that I was doing all the time. I had to actually practice. My last companion was from the United States, and so I practiced in the evening speaking English to him so that I could communicate with my family when I got home. The reason that that happened was because the brain, as I was feeding it Spanish over and over and over again, it became efficient at that, and it learned it very well. And so if you are constantly feeding your brain anxiety, if you, you know, dire predictions of the future, you know, that things are never going to work out, those sort of things, guaranteed that your brain is going to develop a pattern of anxiety that's going to kind of run automatically at some point. Some people say, I can't control my anxious thoughts. And I believe you, because if you've had patterns of anxiety that, that have lasted for years, then I absolutely believe that those thoughts are running very automatically. I guess when I say, I, I, when you say you can't control them, I don't necessarily believe that because I do believe that we can control them, but they do happen very automatically. No question about it. So what we need to do is we need to make sure that we are putting an adequate balance of what we want in our brain, just like feeding our bodies. So if you are, 
if all you do every day is look at things that are making you nervous. I had a friend once who all he did was listen to the police scanners all day long and he'd hear about all these terrible things going on. And, and he was an anxious guy. And I was like, man, stop doing that. There's a lot of good things out there as well. And we need to fill our brains with that as well. Now, I'm not suggesting that you, you know, just put your head in the sand and not look at anything that is real or, or happening in the world. I'm just saying, let's get a balance of that. If uh, the, the scriptures are a great example of that, there are always words of peace and comfort in the scriptures. In fact, I don't think, and I've read the scriptures quite a bit, I can't find anything in the scriptures that kind of promotes the thinking that is going to lead to chronic anxiety. In fact, it's the opposite. Sometimes the Lord is a little terse with people and, and there are consequences for behavior, but it's always followed by, and I love you. And if you repent and come unto me, then it's going to be okay. That there's, there's nothing in there that suggests, you know, we're on a collision course for disaster. Things are never going to get better. Those things just aren't true. And the scriptures bear it out. So when we are taking time to study the scriptures and the words of, uh, of modern church leaders, I think as we fill our brains with those sorts of things, that's going to combat some of that anxiety as well. So find that balance. Think about what do you want to put in your brain and how much of, of what do you want? And you have control over that. And then nurture those things that you want to stay in there and neglect those things that you don't want to stay in there. And over time, then just like learning Spanish, learning a foreign language, you're going to become very efficient at those things that bring you peace. You might know people like that, people that just seem un what's the word? They're unrattled. It's nothing seems to set them off. And you're like, how do you get that way? What's going on? Well, it's probably because they are constantly studying things that are going to help them be calm and react calmly to things. And we can do the same thing. Your brain will change if you feed it enough of a certain thing. It just takes time. In John 14, 27, the Savior said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Savior's peace is different than the world's peace. The Savior's peace lets him sleep on a boat during a tempest. That's the Savior's peace. The world's peace says I have to be calm seas in order to feel no anxiety. The Savior says I can sleep while the wind blows. When he says, let not your heart be troubled, I think what he's saying is that there needs to be action on our part. He's saying, literally, don't let your heart be troubled. Do what you need to do to find the peace so that your heart will not be troubled. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rarely a gospel of inaction. It's a gospel of action. We have to do things every day in order to experience the peace that the Savior wants us to have. So be careful about what you feed your brain. All right, real quick, we'll just review the six things here. Number one, don't worry about having anxiety. Number two, understand diagnosis and diagnostic labels. Three, realize the power of your thoughts. Four, anxiety management involves confronting anxiety. Five, recognize anxiety as a means of building faith. And six, be careful about what you feed your brain. If you want a copy of these slides, I'm happy to give them to you along with my notes. That's where you can find me, Instagram at LDS Psychologist or on my website at ldspsychologist.com. Just let me bear my testimony that um, I know these things we've talked about are true. The Savior's peace is available to all of us. I know that 100%. Anxiety can be a means of us to, to improve and to become stronger. And oftentimes it's a blessing from Heavenly Father. Sometimes it can be chronic and sometimes it, maybe it lasts your whole life. And that'll just give you something that gives you a load your whole life 
to be able to get traction. I promise that in a coming day, either in this life or in the next, you will be very, very grateful for the challenges that you face, even challenges that are related to anxiety, because they'll be the means of you becoming like your father in heaven, becoming like your savior and, and developing that faith that, that they intend you to have. And uh, say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. That was uh, fantastic. I'm just sitting here popping popcorn and uh, <laughs> just learning so much. <laughs> so uh, I ready for some questions. I have some thoughts. I'm ready. And, yeah. And uh, let's see what else we can learn here. So I, I love the the approach of your message as far as, uh, I forget the verbatim, but like a gospel-centered approach to anxiety. You know, sometimes there's this feeling in our culture of like, no, 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 like, don't go to your bishop with anxiety. Don't you know, church is great, but don't take your anxiety there. Like go see a right. mental professional and get it handled and medicated and be good. Like, but obviously the gospel can provide a lot there. So how do you respond to sometimes that? And maybe you don't, maybe I'm blowing it out of proportion, but. No, I, I think it, it actually, it kind of goes both ways. So on sometimes you get people who don't want to go see a mental health professional. And so they just go to their church leader. And that's, uh, you know, that'd be okay if your church leader has some expertise that way, but sometimes it's just way out of their wheelhouse. And the only tools they can give you are the spiritual tools, which are wonderful, but there's many other tools as well. And so I think it just needs to be a blend. You know, getting mental health assistance is critical. I kind of feel like, generally speaking, we're being attacked on multiple fronts. We're being attacked, you know, physically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally and so if we're not using spiritual techniques to fight that battle, then I think we're losing on one front. So in many cases, it's important to actually to go see a counselor. And oftentimes it's important to get on medication as well and to talk to your church leaders about it. Use all those approaches. Why not? Use everything so that you can get as many tools as you can to be able to become, to manage this as effectively as possible. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, and again, I would imagine a professional mental health specialist is going to draw upon those religious experiences and re religious resources, spiritual resources to help them cope and, and handle their anxiety, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, oftentimes I'll work with people, Native American uh, individuals, and they talk about their tribe and I'm like, let's get the tribe involved, you know, because that's their group. That's the, the people that they depend upon. Let's get yeah. as many people involved in this process as we can to help you there's no shame in that. We feel like we need to do everything on our own, but we can't. And I think the Lord purposely overloads us sometimes so that we'll finally give in to that idea that we need some help because then things really open up. So whatever help you can get is fantastic. Yeah. And I appreciate this perspective of just recognizing that we all experience anxiety to some extent, right? I mean, it's a human experience, right? And it's a, you know, it's in our nature to protect us and to keep us aware of our surroundings and, and keep us safe. At the same time, like if somebody was to ask me, you know, formally, do you struggle with anxiety? I'd say, oh no, I, I don't, you know, I know others do, but I don't, but to actually sit back, well, actually I do. And, and there's moments where that anxiety is overbearing. And I'm just, I feel like there's this feeling of like life, the anxiety must take your life out of control in order for you to get help to some extent. Right. But to see right. it like, no, I, we're all dealing with anxiety but sometimes, yeah, it does take people to a place where life is just out of control, right? Right. So I think you could view it as the same way that you view physical health issues, right? So there's sometimes, you know, there's just things that, you know, so a little bit of anxiety is just kind of like a common cold, right? So, okay, well, good, yeah. you know, self-care and, and common sense medicine is going to help. 
Other times you're going to say, no, it's not like that. This is completely overwhelming. I'm in effect, you know, my family responsibilities, my church responsibilities. That's when we need extra help. And so it really is, it's kind of a moving target. And I wouldn't, there's not really one answer to that to say, here's when you need to go get help. I mean, I think help always helps, right? I mean, what's the big deal? And you can talk to someone about it, but it, it very much mirrors kind of the physical health dimension where there are some things that we simply cannot manage on our own and we need, we need help with that. And I think that being humble is critical in that and also being close to the spirit. President Nelson has talked so much about increasing our capacity to receive revelation. And I think it's because there are so many confusing messages out there that if we don't have the spirit as kind of the, the gatekeeper of truth, then we're not going to know what to do. And the spirit will tell you, the spirit will say, go talk to a counselor, go talk to your bishop, go talk to your Relief Society president, elder scorn president, mother, wife, husband, whatever. We can follow the spirit's advice. Yeah. And I think the trick there, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just like just the action starting to talk about it with yeah. trusted people, whether they're professional or not. And that's sort of why I sort of cringe at sometimes when people say like, the bishop's not the therapist, you know, don't, yeah. don't involve them in him there or whatever. It's like, well, a lot of times the bishop is the gateway to the therapist. Like yeah. they just need somewhere that they're comfortable talking or, or it could be a parent or a friend or a release society president, right? Where they begin to talk about it. And then it's like, wow, you know, why don't we look at some resources here to help you get more help. Or I remember a lot of time as a bishop, the person came in, they just sort of needed someone to vent to, talk through some things. Then they left sort of feeling a lot better. And it wasn't that I replaced a therapist in that moment, but I was a listening ear that uh, that's what they needed in the moment. Well, and the other thing we're starting to see, and especially in, in new iterations of the, of the general handbook, is that the bishop's role in counseling is being minimized. And he's actually encouraged to reach out to elder scorn presidents and release yeah. society presidents and other maybe you know seasoned people in the ward. And unless it has to do with issues of where repentance and a common judge is needed, they're like saying, let's not give this to the bishop. And I think that's fantastic. I, I'm the elder scorn president in our ward. And I tell bishop, I'm like, we will take everything that you don't want to do. You know, if you feel like you want to yeah. do it, that's fine. There, there's like, there's a few things that you have to do you know, just uh, by your calling, but everything else, like building cleaning, they were scheduling building cleaning and bishopric meeting. I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, give that to the elders quorum. We can handle the building yeah. cleaning. You know, there's, you guys have much more important things to worry about. And it's the idea of the Lord's storehouse as well. This idea that all of the, all of the resources of the ward are available to ward members. And so if my neighbor is a plumber and I got a problem with my toilet, then I call him and he comes over and helps. And if I'm a psychologist, my bishop has reached out to me and I've helped provide some services to people in the ward, not necessarily officially, but, you know, to be a listening ear and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. We need just that we don't need to get picky with resources and say, this would be, this is contraindicated. Just get help. Yeah. 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 And I appreciate that. You know, if you focus on what the, the changes in the handbook that are happening is, and because I remember I sort of felt like as a bishop of sort of my, that was my role. Like as the counselor, I, I, you know, had to meet with these people over and over again, even though they were meeting with therapy, you know, professional therapists or whatever, but to then turn to the elders quorum and say, well, actually there's some community there they could provide. And and if we're intentional about it, it can really make a difference. And I even think in the context of repentance, sometimes the person is making deep, regrettable trend transgressions because of some mental health dynamic right, happening in right. their life. Right. And so we think, well, because 
this repentance is happening. We can't talk about this with anybody or invite the individual to talk with others about it. When in reality, it's like, okay, we'll handle the repentance thing, you know, as far as ordinances and things. Right. But how can we get you a sense of community in our elders quorum or relief society? Or who do you know in the ward? Like, like who can you talk to not only on the professional context, but in the community context as well. And that could go a long way to help people. Well, and there's even been situations where bishops, you know, even if they're dealing with an issue of transgression or sin, that they can still have that person work with a member of the ward to talk about that. And the bishop works with them periodically. You know, the bishop says, hey, come see me once a month, but I want you to talk to brother so-and-so once a week, you know, just about how you're doing, how you're coping. You know, the three of them can meet together and kind of get a game plan and stuff like that. I love that idea of like sharing the load, you know, Elder Ruchdorf's idea of lifting where you stand. You know, we all get around the piano and we lift the thing out of the room. It'll be interesting to see how this, how long this takes to change because I'm the Elder Scorn president. Nobody calls me. They all call the bishop. You know, because right. we're just we're we're so stuck in that, and it, it may take a generation, you know, for our bishops to get less busy. But we're on the right track. Yeah, that's fascinating. And this is, and I want to really talk through this a little bit, just because this kind of maybe seemed foreign to some people. Of like, well, wait a minute, you know, like why why would I involve other people in my transgression experience? Right. But the reality is, is it's similar to like when I was bishop and dealing with welfare matters. I would tell my welfare specialists and things like my only job, like the only thing in this process that I can only do is to say, sign the check or don't sign the check. Right. Everything else, other people can be involved as far as assessing their budget, their, you know, their income, their job, whatever. Like you can assess all those things, the food needs. Then at the end of the day, you just come to me with a recommendation. I can say, yes, cut the check or don't cut the check. Right. right. And again, that's maybe kind of a, uh, a crude example relating it to the repentance process. But again, the repentance process requires a sense of community of, yep. of people experiencing grace from all around them rather than this transactional, like I often it's easy for the bishop to slip into the parole officer mode. Like, all right, like when was the last slip up and how many right, days? Right. It's like, let's figure out how we involve people. And again, we all, we don't push people into, well, you got to go talk to the elders quorum president about this or that. Like, obviously you get their permission and talk sure. through it, make sure they're comfortable, you know, but again, this is, could go so far with transgressions, especially related to mental health, as we figure out how to really use these resources around us, like the Elders Quorum President, Relief Society right. President. Well, and, and that's why, you know, the bishop has priesthood keys and is yeah. and will have the discretion and discernment to be able to make those decisions. And there might be some situations where he decides that he needs to handle it all himself and other situations where he decides he needs to be minimally involved. And that's and that's the blessing of the Holy Ghost and and the virtue of priesthood keys is that they will be able to make those decisions. And there's a lot of shame associated with our behavior as well. But I, I wish <laughs> I wish we could just have a giant meeting as members of the church and all on the count of three, we just dropped our pretenses and we got to see how we were. And I think it would be the most amazing meeting we ever had because we'd look around and we'd go, wow, I feel so comfortable, you know, because sister so-and-so has this issue and I have this issue and I always thought she was perfect. Or brother so-and-so has this issue and I have this issue. I always thought he was perfect. We, we, we heap a lot of shame on ourselves thinking that we are alone in this. And I just don't think that we are. I think everyone's struggling with something and that's difficult for them. And the sooner we realize that, that we're just all kind of in this together, it becomes so much easier to deal with those things because then, then we just have, we don't have the added weight of shame. We just have the issue to deal with. Yeah. Awesome. And I appreciated this point you made as far as, communicating to people that 
experiencing anxiety is okay. Cause I would imagine, especially maybe the context of the bishop's office or in church where someone's really struggling with anxiety and life kind of feels out of control or where they're like coping through poor decisions or whatnot. And, and it sort of feels like I'm broken. Like I have this anxiety and there's something wrong with me. And so, and I just love these little tactics or phrases maybe a leader can use of saying, you know, this is okay that you feel anxiety. Like anxiety is actually a very normal human experience. We just need to figure out like maybe how to, how to understand it and get you to a place where you don't, you aren't overwhelmed by it, but it's okay that you feel this, right? I, I think that's just a good practical approach to, to beginning to help people. And to even take it a step further, and not only is it okay, this could be a, a blessing the Lord has given you in order oh, for yeah. you to, to become stronger and to develop greater faith in him and stuff, just changes our, just kind of the perspective on it. And then at that point you go, oh, well, th- if this is a blessing, then that's, then, and it's an opportunity for me to grow I think it helps alleviate some of the distress because kind of like in the first principle, we we worry about having anxiety, you know, like I have a panic attack and then I freak out about the fact that I'm having a panic attack. It's okay. You know, (laughs) we don't need anxiety on top of anxiety. It's okay to feel that way. And I think if we can, if we can just modify the perspective and the perception of it a little bit, then I think that helps. And so it just kind of strips away the unnecessary part of it and then just leaves the actual thing that we need to deal with, which is probably less burdensome than if we pile on all the additional stress and worry of I'm broken, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Our feelings are the way they are. We, we just have them and we can learn to manage them, but we don't need to feel guilty about the way that we feel because then that's one more emotion that we have to sort out. Yeah, I love that. Putting it in the context of an opportunity of faith you know, just like Peter walking on the water, it's like, you're feeling a lot of anxiety right now, but look at me, you know, look at Christ. Like that is where we can maybe uh, focus and and it's an opportunity for sure. Um, Let me see. What what do we say as far as like, uh, like medications as it relates to anxiety? I would imagine at times medication is necessary. Is that typically like a long-term plan? Like is someone get medication and think you're sort of going to be on this medication for the rest of your life or is it typically just a a temporary solution? Any any thoughts on that? Yeah. It, well, it obviously it's going to vary from case to case. Um, right. There's, there's kind of, there's two kind of general types of anxiety medication. Um, there's one that works really, really well, a certain type. Um, and it's highly addictive, uh, that's why it works so well. I mean, you take it and you feel better in about two minutes. You're feeling no pain at all. Um, it's a, um, they're called a, like a, a benzodiazepines. And then there are others, which are in the category of what are called SSRIs, and they're often used for depression as well. And you're not going to feel anything when you take that. In fact, you have to take it for three or four weeks before you start to feel any sort of improvement. Those don't seem to work as well, just in my experience in talking with people. They'll say that... Uh, Depression medications seem, we seem to have found some decent ones. Anxiety medications, we haven't seemed to find any that work really good in the long term. And doctors usually won't prescribe those really effective ones for very long because then you end up getting hooked on them and you develop mm. tolerance and stuff like that. And then you start to get into the, you know, kind of like the opioid epidemic that, that we're experiencing a similar situation to that. So that's kind of the bad news is that there really isn't a lot of great medication that that I've noticed that helps anxiety in the long term. It really has to be tackled through our thoughts and through counseling. And for that matter, depression, even though there's good depression medications out there, if you don't get in and do some counseling and start to change the way you think, 
those medications are going to stop working at some point as well. Mm -hmm. um, the brain is just too powerful. And if you feed the brain, whatever you feed the brain, it's going to react to. And so people take depression medication, they start to feel better a couple months later. But if their ongoing thoughts are, I'm worthless, I'm no good, I'm a burden on society, that repeated phrasing throughout your mind over the course of months and months is easily going to overwhelm any sort of medication you throw at it in time. And so usually what happens is medication can help kind of with the initial portion of it, but we have to get in and start to change the way we think about it. And then in time, medication may be unnecessary because we've changed our thoughts significantly so that we don't have, you know, um, it's not fueling those negative emotions. And so then we can kind of be taken off the medications. But obviously that's something to discuss with a, a mental health professional right. um, and follow their recommendations. Yeah, I guess I asked that just to put it into context, like sometimes I remember as a leader, like, you know, talking with somebody and then they say, they would say something like, oh, well, I've stopped taking my medication and whether, you know, maybe they were dealing with anxiety and that would sort of be a red flag. Like, well, wait a minute. Like, yeah. did your doctor tell you to do that? Why right. did you do yeah. that? Like, oh, I feel fine now. And so I guess it's more, obviously that's not the bishop's job or any leader's job to determine whether they should be taking their medication or not, but to just make sure that if they are there and they seem a little off, like maybe just that they're still engaged with that professional and, and getting the right. guidance rather than making decisions on medications on their own, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We should never be making medication decisions on our, I mean, unless you're a physician and, right, yeah. <laughs> and you have that training, but uh, no, you should always follow. And so, and if you're feeling better and feel like you don't need the medication, then go tell your professional about that and say, Hey, yeah. what can we do about this? And then maybe, you know, she'll recommend lowering the dose or something like that, or just going off it all together. Yeah. Yeah. Really helpful. Uh, this, uh, concept of, of diagnoses is is interesting because uh like you said sometimes we live in this world of what is it web md and things you, exactly. you know type in and suddenly you're <laughs> gonna die tomorrow it's like right <laughs> and so it's easy to sort of uh, imply a donation or a, a diagnosis and uh and so but sometimes there's this dynamic of when somebody is like labeled with a diagnosis even from a professional it kind of i don't know sometimes they can get trapped in that it sounds yeah. like right yeah. and uh and to the point where they could be past it, but they still feel like, you know, they have that strep throat from 1990, right? Right, right. <laughs> so true. Yeah. It, it, diagnoses are really designed to be temporary. And when I deal with people, you know, they'll come in and, and they'll say, you know, I'll say, what's going, what's wrong? What's going on? And they'll, they'll give me the list of diagnoses. And I'll say, you know, quite frankly, I, I'm disinterested in the diagnoses. Tell me what's going on today that's getting in the way of you being effective in life. Why are you here now? You know, I said, we can label it whatever you want. I don't care what you call it. We can make up a new name for it if you want. It doesn't matter. Eventually, we're going to have to address symptoms. We don't address diagnoses. We address symptoms and problems. And we learn how am I going to improve? What do I need to do to face this particular issue? So yeah, a lot of people get, they get burdened with the fact that maybe they've been diagnosed and they think, oh my gosh, this is, this is permanent. This is forever. I promise you it's not from a licensed psychologist and I have every authority to say that it's not. In fact, it's the least of our, when the professional work we do, it's just a label and it's really a very little consequence, all things considered. So hopefully anyone listening to this, you should feel the same way. Your diagnosis is of much less consequence than any current issues you might be experiencing. That's what you need to focus on is how do I fix what's going on in my life that's getting in my way of, of being happy. Yeah. And I guess I just think about some individuals, I'm sure many have run into them both in the church and just in everyday life where 
they sort of hold on to this. They make a diagnosis, like a chronic diagnosis. And in there, you see them like what you just have to like, let this go and move on. And, and it's sometimes hard to do that because they they're using it sort of, it's become a, an excuse maybe, or sure. it's impeding them from developing. And I don't even know what you would do in that, that case. Cause sometimes they just can't let go of it. Right. Yeah. It's difficult. I, I, we're seeing that a little more just as in society where it's becoming more difficult to take accountability for our behavior. And we always want someone else or something else to be to blame. And, and mental health diagnoses can become that, right? It's like, well, I can't give a prayer and sacrament meeting because I've been diagnosed with panic disorder. Well, the truth is, it would be very uncomfortable for you to give a prayer and sacrament meeting if you've been diagnosed with panic disorder. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It mm-hmm. means you'd be very uncomfortable or you might have a panic attack in the middle of the prayer, which would be uncomfortable as well. One of the things that I focus on with people is I say, you need to do everything that you have within your power to improve. And there's always something we can do. We are not impotent. I have a client or I've dealt with clients who have chronic schizophrenia, which is a significant diagnosis and which only changes through medication. And I could tell you examples of times when I've helped them do something that helps them feel better even though it really doesn't affect their psychosis, but they did something about it. I think it's a terrible situation when we just feel impotent, when we say, there's nothing I can do. I don't think the gospel, that's not the gospel. The gospel yeah. is the gospel of action. Like I said, it's what can you do to get better about this or to get better with this? So we need to be careful with those diagnoses. Some people do use them to hide behind a little bit. And to those people, I say, hey, it's okay. Let's, uh, you can fix that. There's something you can do. Maybe you don't overcome it all tomorrow. You probably won't, but there's something you can do today to be a little bit happier. And I think it's quite frankly empowering instead of just saying, well, there's nothing I can do about this and I just have to live my life forever like this. And that's a pretty, uh, what's the word? Disheartening situation. Yeah. And obviously I don't want to create any absolutes here, but typically speaking, I'm sure there's some outliers, like a professional mental health person isn't going to say, all right, you have anxiety and therefore you should never speak in public again, or you should just got to avoid grocery stores or like, it's never this like diagnose this uh, treatment plan. It's like, yeah, that's just how your life is going to be now. But maybe for a time, that's maybe, like you said, maybe you can only drive to a grocery store, but rarely is a medical professional going to say, this is just your life forever. I would sure hope not. If they're out there, then they need to stop because that's pretty crummy, pretty crummy (laughs) practice. Usually you get those types of suggested interventions from well-meaning but poorly informed friends. And they're the ones that say, oh, don't, no, don't do that. You don't want to do anything that's going to make you uncomfortable. Parents do that at times with their children. Oh, well, no, my, my daughter, she cannot give a talk in sacrament meeting because she has anxiety and that would terrify her. And I know from a, being a parent, I think, well, yeah, you don't want your kids to go through distress, but it's one of the worst things you can do because then, you know, what happens? You know, then because at some point they're going to be out of the nest and life is pretty unforgiving. You know, I mean, there there's stuff that happens out there that we need to learn to deal with. And so um, shielding your children from any sort of discomfort is the worst thing that you can do from them or for them. You just need to, um, and it's not that you just get out of the way and let life bulldoze them as well. You yeah. intervene selectively, but understanding that the trials and difficulty are a necessary part of our growth. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm not... Uh encouraging that, you know, leaders need to like really push these people and get them out of their comfort zone. And obviously each situation is different, but maybe like 
if a leader observes like, man, they just don't seem like they're progressing and they sort of are hiding behind this diagnosis, maybe having a discussion like, have you talked to your, you know, your therapist about possibly seeing if you get to a point where you could speak in church or or give a prayer? Like, I feel like that would really help you if we get you there. And I believe in you that you can get there. And so maybe talk with them the next, at your next appointment, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But remaining stuck, remaining static, you know, by definition doesn't get us anywhere. And yeah. if you have people that just don't seem to be progressing, then it's time to to start talking about what can they do in order to move forward. Yeah. One thing I want to ask you before we wrap up is the dynamic of anxiety up against the spirit, right? Like this is a tricky thing because sometimes promptings of the spirit can feel a little anxious, right? Sure. Like, wow, like maybe I don't need to go, you know, make sure my oven's off. Maybe I'm just feeling a little anxiety, you know? <laughs> Or, but you can get this state of mind like, oh, that must be a prompting of the spirit. I must act on it, right? And any advice on mitigating that dynamic? Well, I think uh, learning to recognize the spirit is critical because oftentimes we we're not very good at it, and so we we think things and we think, oh, that's clearly a spirit telling me to do that. Where really it's not. I mean, Nephi with Laban is just kind of the the gold standard there because he gets this feeling, this thought of something that he would never do. You know, I said, I got to kill this guy. And he's going, that's insane. I would never do that. But because he's developed a habit of understanding the voice of the Lord, he recognizes that it's the spirit telling him to do that. And so he's able to proceed. And so learning to tell the difference between our own thoughts and the spirit, it's a very subtle art and it takes a lot of practice, but it's time well spent. For me, it's been a very long process and I'm finally getting to the point where I can do that, where I'll, I'll experience something and I'll go, that was the Holy Ghost. That was different than just my own thoughts. Now, Elder Bednar teaches, it doesn't matter if it's if it's a good thought, then do it anyway, right? What's it going to hurt yeah. to go down and check the oven? Right. Now, if you have to check it 30 times a night, that's probably yeah. a problem, you know? Uh, <laughs> now we're getting into some pathological stuff. And oftentimes, the Spirit will encourage us to do something that does create anxiety. Like if the Spirit says, hey, I want you to go and, and talk to this person, and maybe you do not like talking to people. You know, that's not your comfort zone. Just because it creates anxiety does not mean that it's not coming from the spirit. And quite frankly, if you struggle with anxiety, you may often get promptings that are going to encourage you to do things that confront your anxiety because the spirit's trying to help you grow. Yeah, that's really helpful. And sometimes I play this mental game with myself with it. You know, when I have a, those a random thought that could be a prompting, but seems more anxious, I just say, God, if that was a prompting, I'm going to need more than that, than an anxious feeling. So I'm going to continue on until you pester me with some more, some more guidance here. Cause I feel like that was just an anxious thought and I don't want to be a prisoner to my anxious thoughts. Right. Know? Right. So exactly. Um, yeah. Just developing that yeah. relationship with the spirit. Yeah, for sure. And, and it is like, a, it's like the spiritual skill set, right? Like you just have to, when those moments where it was obviously the spirit and good things came from it, like sort of analyze that. What, what, yeah. what did I feel different? How was that not an anxious feeling? And, and exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. people learn that skill set. We're recording this in April of 2021. I guess we're still technically in the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I'm just curious, like anxiety has sort of manifests itself in, I don't know if I'd say unique ways, but maybe more prominent ways, especially as wards are returning back to church. You know, there's members in a ward, and this is something that leaders I've heard from many that struggle with. There's some Members in the ward who's thinking, Bishop, if you don't have everybody, you know, like completely locked down, hazmat suits if you can, like I'm not showing up. And then there's other people that are saying, Bishop, I'm so tired of this mask. Like, don't you dare make me wear this mask, right? right. <laughs> and on both sides, there's some level of anxiety or things that 
as a leader, you look at it and you think, I think that's you're just being overly anxious. And I don't know, I can't just default to the the highest level anxiety in the ward and say, that's where we're going to set the standard, right? So right. any advice right. on just how to navigate this very anxious time in our in our history? Yeah, that's that, that's going to be tough, especially for leaders up here in Washington, where we're slowly kind of being able to, like now our, our whole ward can meet together and, and we can group a little bit in there. There's some people who still want to keep the six feet distance. Uh, we still have to wear masks uh, and we're still broadcasting the, to anyone who wants to view it remote. Uh, and I've talked with our bishop and I said, you know, the, the difficult time is going to be when we cut the broadcast because at some point we'll probably have to. I mean, we'll probably have to return to normal and there's still going to be some people who say, I'm still not going back. Or, I mean, I'll be honest, I loved church in my pajamas. You know, that was that was fantastic. <laughs> Did that for about a year and that was, uh, you know, it's easier than getting in, dressed in a suit and tie and, and going to the building. So I think there might be some holdouts that way too who are going, right. Anxiety. I don't know about that, but I sure love church in my pajamas in front of the, you know, front of the big screen TV. I don't know. It's just going to be. It's tough because the, on the one hand, there's expectations, and and the Lord's, you know, His when He commands something, that's the end of it, and it's non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Priesthood keys have that same effect. When when a leader who has priesthood keys makes a decision, it has the full force of that, and if we are obedient to it, then we'll be blessed which is why it's so incumbent upon those that hold keys to make good decisions. Because if you make a crummy decision with keys, you're the only one that's in trouble. Everyone else is going to be blessed. Yeah, I've done that a few times. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't think there's any way around it. I think there we're gonna, there's going to be difficulty. I think we're going to see people come back to church that we haven't seen for a long time. I think we're going to see people not come back to church that were very faithful before. It's just going to... Yeah, I, I wish I had some good advice. I I, I really don't. Yeah. It's just something that, you know, just to listen to the spirit and be very very prayerful about it. Really considering the one, if we can, you know. I mean, it's it's a yeah. gospel one, and and trying to minister to people and and do what's best for them, which is hard when you're dealing with a ward of three or four hundred people. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, sometimes just from your presentation, some other resources that some thoughts have come to mind is, you know, maybe a, a bad approach is to sort of draw the line you know, too soon or, or for those that are overly anxious and just say like, listen, if you're not, if you're not going to step into this, like then sorry, no church for you or, you know, those types right. of things. But to, to draw that line in a, in a tough way can maybe inflame the anxiety in others and then push them away where the more options you can create, the yeah. better, right? Like I would imagine, especially now where broadcasting is, is still approved and will be for the foreseeable future. Right. To say, hey, listen, you don't have to come. Like, we'll, we'll continue to broadcast this. So if you are too anxious to be here, great. You can right. watch at home. I would invite you maybe to try it out a Sunday, right? There's that le- little invitation of, of to step into the anxiety. or That's right. Um, Sit in the back of the cultural hall, 50 feet away from someone, yeah. put on your own hazmat suit, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Or, or if there's some accommodations we can make for you to come, right. like, you know, I'm happy to consider those, but just know that we got some different views and opinions here that we're trying to, hear them all and, and make this the best experience as possible. But uh, I, I've got option for you and maybe just presenting as many options as you can to still have some level of a spiritual engagement would, I don't know, maybe that's the, I think, the only I, option we have right now. I think that's great counsel. Yeah. Just working with the person individually and uh, that's what the savior would do. You know, he still insists on our obedience. And, and like I said, his, his commandments are not negotiable, but he sure does work with us. You know, he says, well, yeah. what can I do to help you? What can I do to to help you reach this point, to get over that bar? 
that's the, it's just such a perfect blend of exactness and compassion at the same time. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been so insightful and it's going to be a great resource for leaders to uh, listen to. Is there any, I've got one more question for you, but is there any, and you've mentioned where to send people uh, if they want to connect with you, but is there any point or concept that we haven't touched on and you want to make sure we hit before we wrap up or do we, um, do, do we cover it all? I think we got it. Yeah. Like, like cool. I said, if you have any questions, they have my, it's a ldspsychologist.com is my website and there's information on there. And seriously, if people want, if they want to copy my notes, reach out to me, I'll send them there. Or if they have specific questions, I'm happy to answer them. You know, it's like I said, it's the Lord's storehouse and I'll lift where I stand. So uh, I'd be happy yeah. to talk. Perfect. The last question I have, uh, David, is just what final encouragement would you have if you're in front of a room full of leaders who are just, you know, they're so desperate to just help those, everybody in the ward have a positive mental health experience as they engage in the gospel and in their ward and church. What final encouragement would you give to them? It would be to, for ourselves and for others, to extend as much grace as possible. It's okay. You know, we're all moving forward little by little. We're not in a race. There's no artificial deadlines or timelines or anything like that. It's okay to be where we're at. We just need to try to move forward a little bit every day. And as long as we have that grace for ourselves and that grace for other people, I think we're going to be fine. I think a lot of that stress just kind of melts away at that point. We think, okay, I'm doing all right. I can move forward a little bit today and I don't care how fast brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so is going. It doesn't matter that I, I think if we do that, like I said, for ourselves and for others, then that will alleviate a burden that is all too prevalent in the church. We need to get rid of that. That concludes my interview and the presentation of Dr. David Morgan. A big shout out to him. Really appreciate him bringing his expertise, his professional perspective to this conversation. I learned a ton. I hope you walk away as a leader feeling like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not going to say the right thing every time, but I have a better grasp of maybe how I can help other individuals or even myself who uh, struggles with anxiety, right? So big shout out to Dr. David Morgan for letting me learn from him, letting us learn from him and him being a part of the Mentally Healthy Saints virtual summit. Again, you can go to leadingsaints.org slash mental health, sign up for free and uh, listen to 20 plus other interviews and presentations around various mental health topics. So go to leadingsaints.org slash mental health for all the details. And don't forget to register for free for the Mentally Healthy Saints virtual summit by texting the word LEAD to 474747 or visiting leadingsaints.org slash mental health. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only, and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.